0: You're listening to a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Clive Hamilton. He's a philosopher and professor of public ethics at Charles Sturt University in Canberra. Clive joined me in the studio to talk about his new book, Defiant Earth, The Fate of Humans in the Anthropocene. We talked about how human activity has created a new and dangerous epoch, as well as the philosophical and political implications of this. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 FM with Amy Mullins. And I'm absolutely delighted to have with me in the studio today, Clive Hamilton, who is Professor of Public Ethics at Charles Sturt University in Canberra. Uh, thank you so much, Clive, for joining us.
1: Pleasure Amy.
0: So we're really delighted to have you here because you've written a book called Defiant Earth The Fate of Humans in the Anthropocene. Now the Anthropocene is somewhat of a recent development and many people may not have exposure to what the Anthropocene is really referring to and in your book uh, you look at the Anthropocene in a range of frameworks and lens. Um, But you start off looking at where this Anthropocene comes from, which is through the Earth System Sciences. So first of all, I'd like to ask you, what is the Anthropocene? And could you, in a broader context, talk about what came before it?
1: Okay. Well, I'm sure most people listening will have some familiarity with um, the geological timescale. That is the way in which uh, Earth scientists have divided up the entire 4.5 billion year history of the Earth into various divisions. In fact, they divided into eons, eras, periods, epochs and ages. And what they're saying now in the last few years is really something very profound and astonishing. They are saying, the Earth system scientists, that is, they are saying that the human imprint on the global environment has now become so large and active that it rivals some of the great forces of nature in its impact on the functioning of the Earth's system. So when we think about this um, geological time scale going back 4.5 billion years with uh, divisions like the Jurassic and the Cretaceous and so on, what they're saying now is that our imprint has become so huge, so powerful, that we rival the great forces of nature to the degree that we need to declare a new epoch arrived on the Earth to add to the geological time scale. And they've said this new human-determined Earth is called the Anthropocene, the age of humans. And uh, one way of expressing it, uh, James Savitsky, another uh, well-known Earth system scientist, puts it uh, like this. He says, By any unbiased and quantitative measure, humans have affected the surface of the Earth at a magnitude that ice ages have had on our planet, but over a much shorter time frame. And so... You stop and think about this okay it's not just humans changing ecosystems or landscapes um, or destroying a you know an environment over there or a forest system we're now talking about the totality of the earth as a whole this total dynamic system which consists entirely of these processes operating on scales of tens of thousands millions of years and if we think about it in that uh, context We're now being told by the Earth's leading scientists that we have now shifted the geological evolution of the Earth itself. And it seems to me that this is a fact of such profound importance that we need to stop and think about what it means to be the kind of being on this Earth that can have this kind of impact.
0: Indeed. The interesting, I guess, contrast between the Anthropocene and the Holocene, which is what preceded it, is that the Holocene um, was a 10,000-year epoch of mild and constant climate, as you say, that permitted our civilization to flourish. So this was a a somewhat uh, more neutral period. It was obviously not as much in flux as what we have now done to the earth and the earth system. And you say in your book that the Anthropocene the term and the concept was required and developed by scientists because there's a major change, very recent change in the middle of the 20th century that signalled a new complete way that the whole earth system operates. Can you share with us The time period that it really did occur, because there has been debate, as you say, about when the Anthropocene really began and also how they came to that conclusion and what it really means.
1: Yes, this is a crucial question. Let's start from this. Human beings, modern human beings, have been on the Earth some two or possibly 300,000 years. And for the first, say, 190 out of those 200,000 years... If you look at the evidence of of the Earth's climate temperature and CO2 concentrations and so on, you'll see it's a very jagged and chaotic history of dramatic changes and ice ages and warming periods. And as you say, around 10,000 years ago, the Earth went into this kind of really unusual stable period where the temperature settled down and there was a great deal of predictability in the climate system. It was temperate for the most part. And... It was sufficiently stable and regular that because the rivers uh, flowed in a very regular pattern, human beings could settle down and have irrigated agriculture some seven or 8,000 years ago in the so-called cradle of civilization, the river valleys that dra- drained into the Persian Gulf. And so it was this climatic stability in the Holocene that permitted civilization to flourish And now the climate scientists, well, the Earth system scientists are telling us that humans have flourished so successfully in these remarkably clement and stable conditions that we have changed the way the Earth functions and and probably bounced it out of this period of stability uh, with rapid global warming into a a new period of great uncertainty, instability, uncontrollability. And there has been some... Uh, scientific debate about exactly when this period, this Anthropocene started. And here we just have to take, for someone like me who's not a scientist, we just have to listen to the best advice there is. And that comes out of the so-called Anthropocene Working Group, a group of some 25, 30 mostly scientists, established by the International Commission on Stratigraphy. Uh, Stratigraphy is the science of rock layers, geologists basically. Uh, who have said, OK, here's this idea of the Anthropocene. Let's ask these group of specialists to write a report, assess all the evidence, and, and tell us uh, when the Anthropocene uh, is best uh, dated from. And, and that Anthropocene working group have said, weighing up all of the evidence... That is the evidence on when the functioning of the Earth system changed as a result of human impact. And we reckon that that began after the end of the Second World War from 1945, 1950 and thereabouts, because there's a very distinct signature in the functioning of the Earth system, mainly due to increased greenhouse gas emissions, but other factors as well, such as species extinction and interruption of the nitrogen cycle and so on. So from the end of the second world war that's when they date the beginning of the anthropocene so it's very new i mean it's you know in geological times it's an instant it's like uh, an asteroid strike really it's it's so sudden and and yet in that last 60 70 years the earth has undergone this extraordinary change you know as Savitsky says it's the equivalent of an ice age Uh, when those great ice masses would come creeping down from the north in the northern hemisphere and cover New York with a kilometre of ice. They're saying that the change that we have brought about on the earth is in its scale and intensity on that um, that kind of equivalence. It's a very, very profound event, a rupture, as I say, over and over again in the book. It's a rupture in the history of the earth. And, of course, it's a profound rupture in the history of humankind on the earth.
0: Well, you do talk about the history of how we've seen nature and how nature has been, and the forces, the physical forces of nature have been seen to be blind, somewhat uncontrollable, and they're moving along at their own pace and dynamic, whereas now we have another actor involved, which is humans, who have become entangled with the earth and the earth's history. Can you expound upon the entanglement that we now find ourselves in? Because you also talk about humanity as a geological force or power, and that we now need to consider its distinctive quality and, as you say, its volitional element, which means it's agentic. Yes. Can you talk more about our agency and our geological power as humans in this context of the Anthropocene?
1: Yes, this is very deep in its implications. In modern times, in the West at least, over the last several hundred years, this idea has emerged, which is kind of entrenched in our thinking about the world, that we have the earth, the natural world over there, which responds uh, uh, to blind forces of nature, and then we have humankind over here, we have our own history, which responds to human agency, our decision-making, our activities which are volitional, that is, as a result of our free will. But what we've seen now is that the history of the earth uh, responding to natural, blind natural forces and the history of humankind converging in the arrival of the Anthropocene, or put another way, the entanglement of the blind, unconscious forces of nature with the conscious volitional force of human beings as a new, he kind of can't say, force of nature, um, because, well, are we natural? That's the question. Are we natural or unnatural? Let's say this new unnatural force uh, becoming entangled with the natural forces of, uh, of nature. And so now we have this volitional element entering into the functioning of the Earth system. And it means that the Earth itself has changed you know as we might say ontologically that is the nature of the being the the nature of the thing itself the earth is different because previously it was composed of and changed in response to these unconscious blind forces but now we have this conscious force capable of making decisions uh, about how the earth functions one way of thinking about this is The earth is almost certain to warm by two degrees uh, over the next uh, this century or earlier probably, 2070. Depending on what human beings do over the next two to three decades, it could easily warm by three or four or five degrees. And the difference between uh, an earth warming by two degrees and five degrees is massive, massive in terms of the way the earth system will function. But the question of whether it will warm by 2 degrees or 5 degrees this century is entirely in the hands of us human beings i mean we can decide that or that this has never happened before of course in the history of the earth for 4.5 billion years there's never been a conscious force that could decide okay we'll have this kind of earth system not we'll have this kind of earth system now We're very bad and hopeless, catastrophic actually at making these decisions and we may continue to make appalling decisions that are going to damage us as well as the rest of other living things appallingly. But the fact is we do have that choice. We can't deny it. And therefore the nature of the Earth system, its ontological quality has changed as a result of the arrival of the Anthropocene.
0: So... One of the criticisms of the Anthropocene, the concept of or the term of, is that, as you write, it distributes responsibility to everyone and away from those actually answerable for bringing on the new EPIC. And those are those in power who have political power, economic power, and that is naturally tied to capitalism, given that it started in a moment of rapid industrialisation at the end of World War II. And so naturally, it's also inherently political. And certainly scientists would not like to think of science as political, but when you add this dimension and, and the timing and the context for this situation, it is political. How do we reconcile this responsibility that we all have that is really somewhat benign or it's very hard to actually feel the weight of, the burden and the gravity of as an individual in society?
1: This is an issue that really needs grappling with. There are many kind of critics in the social sciences and humanities who don't like the term anthropocene because it refers to a generalised anthropos and they say well if you're thinking of climate change of course it's rich people in rich countries who are most responsible for it and poor people suffer most. That's absolutely right and I've written about that quite a lot in the past. But there are a couple of problems uh, with it or developments of the idea. One is that at a, at a, at that level of practicality and, and politics, the responsibility for greenhouse gas emissions—let's say that's the dominant cause of the arrival of the Anthropocene—is no longer the responsibility of the kind of rich people living in their mansions in you know uh, rich Western cities. And, and I could go on about this for quite some length, but let me let me just quote you one kind of very pregnant fact, and that is this the average greenhouse gas emissions from a Chinese person are now higher than the average greenhouse gas emissions from a European. So this complicates the picture enormously. And if Indians had their way, their greenhouse gas emissions would be higher than the average European, and they may well be in 20 years' time. So, you know, it's not a Western phenomenon anymore. It's a global phenomenon. But... So that's a kind of pragmatic objection that the, the objection may have been relevant in the eighties, nineties, seventies, eighties, nineties, but it's less and less relevant now. But I want but there's a different level. Putting all that aside, even you know, it's true about rich people, poor people, and responsibility. I think there's something so big and so profound in the arrival of the Anthropocene. If we think about it on these massive timescales, that suddenly After 4.5 billion years, the nature of change in the Earth system has undergone this huge transformation as a result of the intervention of a conscious willing being, albeit a conscious willing being with profoundly unequal distribution of power and wealth and so on. And I think that when we get to that, we also need to think of it in terms of humankind. You know, there's something about the activities and the commonality of humankind taken together that demands our thinking and that asks us to think this through philosophically even theologically there is something about the nature of human beings on this earth that we need to grapple with with something about the nature of human beings as such
0: Well, that's true. You do say that this reconfiguration of human agency in the Anthropocene means we actually need to go beyond earth system science, which you begin your book exploring, into philosophy, which we've just briefly referenced ontology. You reference a couple of key philosophers in terms of referencing freedom and necessity uh, and morality, and you talk about Immanuel Kant, but you also talk about Goethe and, uh, and Marx and Heigel. Could we look at these types of philosophical historical frameworks around morality and freedom that you're referencing in regard to the Anthropocene and human's agency within it and our moral obligation to be moderating our power and impact and creativity onto the, the earth system? In terms of these concepts that you're referencing within philosophy, which do you believe ends up being the most useful way to frame in a philosophical sense our grappling with our role within the anthropocene.
1: I went back to those early modern and later modern philosophers to understand how we had got to where we are in terms of our understanding of ourselves and our relationship to the earth. And this uh, division between uh, the, the the notions of freedom and necessity really preoccupied those early philosoph- early modern philosophers like Immanuel Kant. Uh, and hegel and uh, a whole bunch of others and this was uh, very significant we don't kind of remember it now because it seems such a long and we've internalized it so much but there was a very profound event on earth or in europe let's say and it was it was called the lisbon earthquake and i've forgotten the date now sometime in the 16th century And there was this massive earthquake centered on Lisbon that basically destroyed the city and and a huge number of people died. And a a big debate broke out over the next years between philosophers and theologians because there were those who said, it's obscene to say that as the theologians have been telling us that this uh, massive death, this earthquake was, was an act of God. This just happened. And humans are not... The playthings of the gods or God, but we are independent, autonomous agents who make our own history, and sometimes natural events come along and upset our plans. And so, the division between freedom and necessity was, a very, you know, is really the starting point of all modern philosophy. But what we're seeing now with the Anthropocene is is really a destruction of that idea. I mean, it's completely unexpected, and that is human history and Earth history have now converged, have become entangled. As some group of scientists writing in Nature, I think, put it, they said, the fate of one determines the fate of the other. Now, this, of course, is not a theological question, but uh, but the merging of uh, the blind natural forces with this new volitional, very powerful force called humankind. And so it means that, Freedom and necessity are no longer separated in the way we once imagined because what we do will determine we, the free part of the equation, will determine what happens in the the natural world. The necessity part of it and what happens in the natural world, the necessity part of it now has a profound and increasing impact on the free part of it that is, on human history, on human life, on our decision making capacity. So, what do we do? How do we think about this? I mean, this is a profound philosophical challenge, which actually I think mainstream philosophy won't confront at all. You know, as always, you have to wait for the old philosophers to die off before the younger philosophers come through with the new ideas and prevail. And I'm hoping that, you know, I've kind of cleared a tiny bit of ground, a clearing in the forest, if you like, and some much uh, cleverer younger philosophers will come along and start opening it up to understand what it all means. But I think the arrival of the Anthropocene is not just a, a scientific rupture, breakthrough, and it's not just a challenge to us as uh, acting moral political beings to do what we must to try to save the earth and ourselves from catastrophe. It's also a profound challenge to philosophical thinking, which might sound abstract over there, but actually this philosophical thinking which emerged in the Enlightenment modern period really imbues how we think about ourselves as creatures. You know, we think of ourselves as isolated egos existing inside our bodies now you think well that's what we are aren't we but actually this is a very new idea you know a few hundred years old and it's a very western idea of course and now we're seeing a challenge to that with the arrival of the anthropocene so what i've done in this book is try to just open up that question say wow i mean this is big let's start to try to sort through what it means i think it will take years, decades to actually sort it through and to change our understanding of ourselves. But what I'm suggesting is this is just the start.
0: Mm. Well, it's really fascinating because it's really cyclical. It's actually humans are acting upon nature and nature is then in turn, as you say, acting back upon humans. And that is somewhat contradictory, as you also say in the book. It's one of the key contradictions is this idea that they're both very powerful and they're both impacting upon each other. You also talk about this idea that humans struggle When a new idea will come along that encapsulates a new dispensation, which people's response will be, oh, well, that's not my view of the world, so I'm just going to ignore that and let it all lie there. It's almost a nice, really easy way of putting things in denial land. Mm. and. This is really that point. We've seen it in climate change, people saying, oh, well, that doesn't fit with my worldview, the science that we're getting warmer. Well, it doesn't work for me in my framework, in my perhaps enlightenment framework, so I'm now not going to deal with it. You've opened up the ground to discuss and and confront this, but how do we actually start that dialogue as non-philosophers to talk about our role now and also that... As you say, if not every human is responsible for bringing about the Anthropocene, every human is destined to live in it. So we have no choice. We're going to live in it and basically most of this damage is irreparable and will take millennia to be fixed if, it, if ever. How do we reconcile now something which is not necessarily optimistic, it's somewhat threatening and it represents, as you say, a failure of humanity?
1: This is, in a way, the hardest question and I think it's a question that we're going to have to take a long time to answer and that's not because, well that's because these things do take a long time. If we think back to the arrival of modernity say in the 16th, 17th century and the early philosophers in the 18th century who started to write about this, they represented a profound challenge to the previous European understanding of the nature of reality and the nature of human beings. So they brought a revolution in thinking which took decades to really sink into the first of all to the broad intellectual community and then out into wider society and into the way people in everyday life thought about themselves because the conception of self that the average person has today is nothing like the conception of self that the average person in Europe had 400 years ago and I think we'll undergo a, a, another radical transition as the Anthropocene unfolds and we learn to try to grapple with it and grasp it. And one of the, it has all kinds of implications. I mean, for example, we have to abandon all ideas of living in a utopia. There are no utopias anymore. There's only whether the future is, you know, how intolerable the future is going to be in terms of a changing climate and an increasingly defiant earth, an increasingly hostile earth. Her earth that's no longer passive and controllable by human beings, but one that is increasingly fighting back, as it were. And so we're going to have to change our understanding of what nature, of what the environment, of what the earth is, and therefore how we relate to it. And this is something that our thinkers will have to do for us, but also uh, the popularizers, and ultimately how people in everyday life uh, absorb this profound fact about the change in the nature of the earth and the change in the nature of humans. And, and it will take a long time. This isn't a book where you get to the end and there are 12 steps you can do to you know defeat the Anthropocene or even to live in the Anthropocene. What I'm saying is that, of course, we must keep acting, and trying to do everything we can, those of us who really understand the threat posed by climate change, for example. But we also need to stop and think and try to come to grips with what the uh, Earth system scientists are telling us and what it means for us.
0: Absolutely, and one of the interesting things that you highlight is the idea of humans as an exceptional creature. And I just want to touch on that because I think it adds an extra layer of uh, meaning to this discussion because often we, well, not everyone, but some people would recognise humans as being part of nature and just another living being. But you explore in the book that humans are exceptional in their creativity and they do have a difference, a differential in the sense that they have a conscious choice that they can make. And you say that the era of monstrous anthropocentrism – is not that it recognises humans as the exceptional creature, which you say is indisputable, but that it elevates the human to an exalted place of power without responsibility. And that's an area of, you know, responsibility. Not a lot of people (laughs) want to feel that too heavily because it could be quite an existential thing um, to think about just how responsible you are as an actor in the world. And that brings, you know open the whole discussion of freedom and how free we are but you do say that humans are remarkably free and agentic in this world and although there are constraints there is a great level of moral burden so to speak. In that regard how do we look at ourselves as being exceptional and yet part of the earth?
1: Yes this is very much part of the argument of the book. Um, A little bit of background there are particularly in the kind of environmentally sympathetic uh parts of the world, environmental I think as green activists and so on, there's this kind of emerging view that's emerged over recent decades really, um, particularly over the last, say, three decades, of human beings as being, you know, deeply integrated into nature, another natural creature. And and the effect of this has has really been to take away the power of human beings well if we're just another creature how come we've got into the position where we can change the geological future of the earth and we have to face up to the fact that humans have become this enormously powerful creature and therefore the kind of anti anthropocentric uh, philosophies and thoughts that are now quite common uh, in some parts of the community really have to confront this new fact that we're not just you know destroying this ecosystem and that one but we're actually changing the geological uh trajectory of the earth and no other creature can do that no other creature can decide whether the earth warms by two degrees or five degrees uh this century we're not we're talking we're talking about the anthropocene we're not talking about the chimpo scene or the chuko scene you know or even the bacteria scene we're talking about the anthropocene and so this fact this fundamental fact of earth system science that human beings are enormously powerful forces us i think to to confront the responsibility that we have And now you could say, well, you know, we've always known we've had responsibility for the natural world. But this elevates it to another level entirely, which is why, you know, you use the word a kind of existential question. And I think it is in both senses, both the sense of the survivability of humankind, uh, which plays on the minds of many highly qualified, thoughtful people, but also in the sense of, the nature of our existence an existential question which uh, challenges us to rethink the nature of human existence on the earth and i argue that the arrival of the anthropocene and the enormous power that humans have over the geological evolution of the earth imposes on us an enormous burden an enormous responsibility way beyond any we, uh, we thought we had before And we have to now really confront this monstrous responsibility and to work out how to deal with it. And I don't really know what the answer to that is. And I think it will take some time for us to think through what that means.
0: Yes, and you do set out what this decision is that we need to make. You say that we we can either attempt to exert more control, as some would like, and actually deify humans to say that technology will solve everything and the Anthropocene could be good uh, in the sense that we can even further exert control and influence and power over um, the geological forces of nature, or we could, on the very other end of the scale, draw back and practice meekness. But that would have, as you say, many social consequences and perhaps is not realistic. So is there a middle ground? Not that I'm asking for that answer, but do you think it's the answer is between those two?
1: Well, first of all, there are two essential facts that come out of Earth system science. One is that humans are enormously powerful, but the other is that the Earth is no longer uh, the passive... ...source of resources and repository for wastes... Uh, ...nor is it the kind of all-loving Mother Earth... ...that we're raping and pillaging. Both of these, the kind of capitalist rapacious system... The kind of thinking about the Earth... ...and the deep green thinking about the Earth... ...as poor Mother Nature who's been raped and pillaged... ...these are both wrong. Nature is no longer this passive creature. Nature is now an angry beast that we continue to poke and prod and provoke at our peril. And if we think that, well, the problem is we just haven't used our technology enough, that we can now pacify this angry beast, then I think this is a profound mistake because the earth is uncontrollable Uh, As a totality, the Earth is just enormously powerful, enormously complex, enormously unpredictable and uncontrollable. And if we think through geoengineering, for example, we can use a great big technology to regulate it to suit our needs, then this is probably the worst mistake we could possibly make. On the other hand, the kind of deep green view is that we just need to learn to walk lightly on the land, withdraw and so on and so forth. We can't do that anymore. It's too late for us to withdraw because we've set the earth on this new path, the Anthropocene. And it's not going to turn back. We have to deal with it somehow. But of course in dealing with it in taking responsibility for what we've done and managing the you know it's a bit like a nuclear power plant you can't just walk away from it and leave it there you have to manage what you've done for thousands of years the nuclear waste doesn't just disappear and it's the same with the earth system it's not going to go back it's not going to disappear we have to manage it but we have to manage it with a great deal of humility and respect for the power of the earth system which can destroy us And so we have to work out ways of managing our role on the earth while respecting the enormous power uh, of the earth system and its capacity to, to, to do great harm to us.
0: One of the quotes that you have in this book, which is particularly useful for those listening, is one that you say from Terry Eagleton, where he says, optimists are conservatives because their faith in a benign future is rooted in their trust in the essential soundness of the present. I feel that that quite nicely summarised what I've taken away from your book, is that we can't be too optimistic In the sense of saying, oh, well, that's something for a future period and, of course, things will work out because we have trusted ourselves in technology and nature isn't this angry beast that we think it is. We think it's this benign, beautiful part of life it really is something that we need to grapple with and and feel the responsibility, the burden that we have as humans, collective agents. Is that something that you were hoping people would take from it? And were there other things that you, you really wanted people to take away from your book?
1: I think, Amy, you've captured it very nicely, is to try to understand the profundity of what's happened, of what we've done, of uh, what we've become, and to... Think deeply about it and there's a kind of, in a way, it's a call not to act uh, in the sense that leaping to action can be a way of avoiding thinking and what I'm saying is, no, we have to stop and deeply think and reflect. I'm not saying we should stop doing our actions out there to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, more particularly to engage politically, but we also have to stop and think and uh, not to engage in cheap escape routes like unsustainable optimism or imagining technology will save us or, you know, even some who are talking about, you know, building spacecraft to escape a ruined earth, which I think is the greatest moral failing possible. Um, If we can't look after this earth, do we deserve to be given another opportunity to ruin another earth? So, yes, what you say is quite right. And uh, the Terry Eagleton quote is, uh, I think, very germane because it's really a call for us to face up to, confront and reflect on the profundity of what is now happening.
0: Thank you very much, Clive Hamilton, um, for joining us and for making me and I'm sure everyone else think very deeply about this.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.